Welcome to the Good Energy Project with Lou Connor, a surprisingly hopeful and upbeat show about economics, climate change, and our future on planet Earth. Welcome to the Good Energy Project. Today I'm in the Wellington Access Radio studio with Max Rashbrook, Wellington-based journalist, author and academic. Max is well known in New Zealand and internationally for his research and writing on economic inequality and democratic renewal. He's a senior research fellow at Victoria University's School of Government and he writes a fortnightly column for The Post, as well as writing for outlets like The Guardian and Prospect magazine. He's also got a number of influential books like Government for the Public Good and Too Much Money. I'm pretty sure I remember seeing Max at parties decades ago in Wellington, having rigorous political conversations. And I've been stoked over the past year to get a couple of one-on-one meetings with him, where I've learned a little bit more about his work. And he's been really generous with his time in helping me get my head around some of the economic issues. So Max's focus is on economic inequality, and I'm really interested to hear his thoughts on how this relates to climate change and environmental issues. He also has a different view on the topic of degrowth to some of the other people I've been talking to. Do we actually need to stop growing the economy to survive climate change, or is there a way to keep growing while using less energy and resources? One interesting thing I discovered about Max recently is that he's the grandson of the iconic Wellington activist Kay Miller, who was a conservationist, mental health activist and cooperative housing advocate, who amongst other things set up Trash Palace, the recycling centre in Porirua. I learnt about Kay Miller through staying at a little retreat house on the south coast of Wellington called Alice Krebs Lodge. It's a tiny cottage built from recycled materials in the 80s on a wild hillside looking out to Rokawa Moana, the Cook Strait. I've gone to stay there for years for little solo retreats, and I've been fascinated by this mysterious figure of Kay Miller who established it. So it was very cool to find out the connection with Max. I'm interested to hear a little bit about how his family background has shaped his work and passions. So welcome, Max. Lovely to be here. I've got a couple of questions that I've asked my other guests. I'll just start with those if that's okay. The first is, um, do you remember what absorbed your attention and energy when you were a child? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, Well, I grew up in Eastbourne, Mm -hmm. which is a really beautiful part of the world, and the forest is just up behind our house, and the harbour is at the bottom of the road. So I would have spent a lot of time in the bush making tree forts. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been one. Yeah, we had quite a complex tree fort in an old eucalyptus tree. I spent a lot of time playing sports mm. as well, particularly football, soccer, as you'd say, and an enormous amount of time reading. Ah, uh, yeah. 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 Did you have any particular interests when you were young? 
I mean, I think we all just, my family read endlessly. I mean, I grew up in one of those households just sort of stuffed full of books. Yeah, okay. You know, my parents' books, my grandmother's books, my great-grandmother's books. Yeah, right. So we just sort of read anything we could get our hands on, really. Um, I don't read anymore, but I read a huge amount of sci-fi and fantasy Uh, uh, when I was a sort of child and... Teenager, yeah, I mean, I love the exploration. Yeah, I love yeah. the sort of visions of a different world. I love the yeah. creativity. I got a bit turned off at it later in life because the quality of the writing is often uh, abysmal. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But I, I like the vision element yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. Do you see that as having sort of shaped your passions and interests? I don't think I'd really ever put the two things together. But, mm. I mean, I think I'm definitely someone who's passionate about the idea that another world is possible Mm, and that mm. we can be different and Mm. that creativity and the imagination are just absolutely fundamental parts of who Mm, we are as human mm, beings. mm. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure there's a sort of clearer through line to what I do politically than that, but that would be one form of inspiration, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Another question I've been asking other people is, do you remember first becoming aware of money and how did that affect you and how did you feel about it? First thing about money that I remember is that we all had those funny old, now seem quite dorky, uh, post office savings accounts. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think I remember those. Yeah, with the little booklets. And we would be given our pocket money, which would be a dollar a week or something like <laughs> okay. that in the 80s. Mm. And we would diligently have to put that into our post office savings account, the coins in a in an envelope, I think, and then we'd have to f- we'd fill it out in the booklet mm. and we could watch our money accumulating mm. in this very kind of cautious and serious manner. Oh, yeah, manner. quite serious. Yeah. How did you feel about it? Oh, I don't recall having very strong feelings about it. I probably thought it was a good thing. One of our family stories is that one of my older sisters once at quite a young age made a very eloquent and impassioned speech about how our pocket money should be adjusted for inflation. <laughs> okay, that's a good point. That's in- how old was she when she made that? Uh, I'd be lying if I told you I could remember exactly how old, <laughs> but I think it was young enough that it was slightly comic. It's quite and, precocious. Yeah, quite precocious and, and quite focused on ensuring the absolute best possible deal for us as kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's quite funny. Um. Another question is, do you remember first becoming aware of climate change and how did that affect you? I think mostly in a relatively detached sense. I just remember some coverage of it in the media in the early 2000s when I was at Mm. university and then I remember it becoming more a subject of discussion when I was working in London in the 2000s. But that was very much a case of reading about it. And I mm. suppose the debates about should you give equal airtime to climate deniers, who at the t- uh, that point yeah. did get equal yeah. airtime. And as a journalist, I think that was a question that concerned me. Were you a, a journalist in London at yeah. that point? Yeah, mostly financial journalism. Ah, oh, interesting. Yeah. So. It was a question of, uh, is it actually happening? Yeah, I mean, I remember the debates about how you presented Mm. for and against arguments on Mm. tackling climate Mm. change. Yeah, so my first memory of climate change is not particularly immediate. Mm. Uh, It's not particularly tangible. It was Mm. about 
yeah, how it affected my professional yeah, obligations. Yeah. Has it changed over the years? Oh, well, I mean, just like everyone, I've got increasingly worried about <laughs> the real world yeah. impacts of it. And while my own life hasn't been directly affected in a sort of profound way yet, you know, I'm hugely concerned about what's happening to people affected by cyclones and mm. fires and all the mm. rest of it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm interested a little bit later to hear about the connection between climate change and inequality. Yeah, do you have a sense of what inspired you to get involved with inequality and also democracy? Are there any moments or experiences of inspiration that you remember? It's an interesting question and it's one I sort of got asked indirectly once after I was giving a talk at Unitech mm. where there's a lot of sort of second chance learners and learners mm. from poorer mm. backgrounds and I was doing a talk there on economic inequality and this young woman came up to me afterwards and said, oh, sorry, but I wanted to ask, are you from the struggle or the 1%? Oh, that's interesting, yeah. And what she obviously meant was, why is this sort of apparently well-off, highly educated white guy in a suit? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so obviously, <laughs> yeah, really concerned about these issues of social justice. Mm. And I had to admit that although my family probably weren't technically quite the 1%, uh, we were in its environs and certainly a lot closer to that than to the struggle, mm. uh, as it were. Um, but... I think we'd always been brought up to believe that people have obligations to each other and that often people mm. are where they are through luck, mm. not because mm. they're just sort of wonderful individuals. Um, Do you and, know where that idea or that sort of like belief came from? Like I've heard a little bit about your grandmother, Kay Miller, and she seemed to be very concerned about people's welfare across society. I yeah. what the I mean, roots of that are. Well, I mean, she, so that branch of our family, people had come out from England in the 1840s and they were very heavily involved in New Zealand public life from the get-go. So they were politicians, oh, yeah, right. ministers and MPs and mm. prime minister in one case. And that's a mixed blessing because no great shock to hear that their record on Māori issues was pretty poor. Yeah, OK. But they did believe in public service and within their own world they were often quite charitable and progressive. Mm. Um, they are among the earliest advocates for the welfare state, for support of people who were struggling, for mm. income taxes. We forget that in the 19th century income taxes were a crazy idea. Mm. So I guess that, you know, my grandmother Kay and I both come from a family that's used to operating in public, is used mm. to being active politically in one mm. form or another, and which has a sense of its responsibilities to other people. Mm. Mm. My parents aren't great philosophers or anything, but they just had that very basic concern for decency and mm. fairness mm. and for looking after other people mm. and the belief that a good society is one in which people do care mm. for others and mm. when other people are struggling, they're helped and they're supported rather mm. than punished and blamed. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any heroes or, like, people that really inspire you? Well, I mean, my, my grandmother, Kay Miller, is probably the closest to that. And, and it's lovely to hear about you staying in, in the mm. lodge that she had built. It's, it's quite an amazing place out on that headland. <clears throat> yeah, I really admire her because... Um, you know, she had some enormous advantages in life in terms of what she inherited. 
And she really tried to put that in the service of people and the planet. So, I mean, she did all kinds of things in her life. She helped get uh, Jewish people out of Nazi-era Germany. Oh, really? Yeah, by arranging passports and visas yeah. and sponsors and lobbying governments and things mm. like that. And she worked in children's homes mm. and she had a degree in science but then also a master's degree in philosophy uh, yeah. at a time when that was unusual for women. Yeah. And then, yeah, she became most famous as the Porodua tip lady yeah. in the late 70s where she set, yeah, basically set up this one-woman proto sort of tip shop mm. in Porodua. Mm. And at one point, virtually lived on the tip in what was incredibly insanitary conditions. Okay, uh, yeah. But she was just like that. And she had this incredible self-confidence and drive and mm. idiosyncratic will. Mm, mm. And she, yeah, and she believed profoundly in causes mental health causes. Mm, she mm. owned quite a large property in Kandala and tried to uh, basically build a whole ton of sheltered housing mm -hmm. in the bush okay. on a property for people yeah. with mental health problems. Oh, wow. You can imagine how well that went down in Kandala. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. You know, like a ton of bricks and it mm. didn't happen. Mm. Um, but, but, she, but those ideas survived, kind of. Yes. Like she put something out there and, like, I picked up on it. Yeah, yeah, and particularly the stuff that she was pushing on recycling mm -hmm. 20, 30 years ahead of her time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was just miles ahead of her time on so many mm. issues. And her legacy was forgotten for quite a long time, but it's just it's coming back into the light now. Mm. She got a Wikipedia page. Oh, yeah, yeah, I saw that. Uh, actually. This year. Yeah. yeah, and we actually had a symposium on her works at the mm. weekend. Oh, cool. So, yeah, she's, she's a great figure to look mm. up to in various mm. ways. Yeah. Um, do you have any sort of principles or values that you hold dear or sacred? I think generosity is really important uh, to me. Yeah. Generosity mm. and reciprocity, mm. which mm. go together. Mm. Not that I always live up to this necessarily, but I do try to lead a generous life mm. in the sense of giving to to causes that are important, giving mm. to other people, giving to the community, even just the building where I live. I do quite a lot in the garden and things mm. like that, mm. and that's my contribution to the collective. Yeah, yeah. I really like the saying, which I think comes from one of the McKenzie philanthropist family, that you make a living by what you get, but a life by what you give. Oh, nice. And I think sometimes, particularly in New Zealand, but in mainstream New Zealand, we've forgotten the fact that in the right conditions, you know, we really are enlarged by being generous. Mm. You're not getting taken advantage of, or at least most of the time you're not, if you give to other people and you're supportive and you mm. sort of put yourself out there, actually you get so much back mm. and you help. You build the collective, and so you build the lives of everyone who has some kind of investment mm. in that collective. Mm. So that, that generosity is really important to me and that's also tied into a view about reciprocity, you know, that we're all intimately linked to each other. No man is an island. Mm. Seek not for whom the bell tolls because it tolls for thee. I was mm. an English lit student, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. John Dunn is important to me. Mm -hmm. You know, we are all profoundly connected to each other by webs of reciprocity mm. and obligation mm. and care and love. Mm. Um, and a good society is one that fosters that and also that sense of reciprocity with the environment mm. too, which mm. obviously too often particularly in Western developed economies, we have tended to uh, deal with on a take relationship rather mm. than a give one. Mm. There's, um, my last um, person I uh, interviewed, we actually had a conversation and I just ended up turning the conversation into some podcasts, was um, someone called Hemi Hirimi, who's a Maori researcher and teacher and cultural translator. And what you're saying just now really resonates with what he was 
talking about with the kind of cosmology of Rangi and Papa. He was talking about how the connection with the environment isn't separate to connecting with people and how it's all part of the same thing. Yeah, and just a really minor sort of demonstration of some of that is the people who do work with teens who have got really troubled mental health mm. through the environment, through environmental oh, yeah. projects. And I heard someone talk about this the other day, a guy from Taita who's doing a lot of this work, and he said the kids just change when they're mm. in the natural environment, they're getting their hands mm. dirty in the positive sense, mm. they're planting things, they're removing invasive weeds, and it just it opens them up to a yeah, whole different yeah. conversation and way of yeah. seeing things and working on their issues. Oh, that's really cool. Can you say any more about that? Since your focus is inequality, can you say some more about how that relates to climate change? Yeah, I think there's all sorts of practical and functional ways that they're connected. Mm. I mean, the most obvious one is that most emissions come from rich people, (laughs) just to put it really bluntly. In New Zealand, I can't remember the figures exactly, but I think it's something like if you're in the top 10% of income earners, then you're per person emissions I think are something like three times higher than the average New Zealanders, Mm. which is not surprising. I mean, rich people live in really big houses, Mm. they Mm. travel a Mm. lot, their energy consumption is high, Mm. and they buy all sorts of things which have got Uh, huge embedded emissions. That story is true internationally. It's particularly true in the US. I mean, Mm. the US top 10% is responsible for just a eye-watering amount of global Mm, emissions mm. because their lifestyles are just so colossally Mm. out of step with what's sustainable. And there are large parts of the world, I mean, something probably like the poorest 50% of the world, if you took a carbon budget approach, which I don't necessarily, but for argument's sake, Mm. they're probably living within their carbon budgets already. You know, the people who aren't Mm. are rich people, developed Mm. countries generally, and within that, the richest Mm. people within those developed countries. So that's a really obvious functional connection and conversely, who is already being hit worst by climate mm, change is poor mm. people. And so you, you, your response to climate change has to take into account of inequality in a really profound sense, and that's mm. the idea of the just transition and all mm, that stuff. Mm. But in a much deeper philosophical level as well, I mean, I'm not a spiritual person, so I, wouldn't necess- I myself wouldn't think in terms of a cosmology or things like mm, that. Mm. But, yeah, the problem with climate change is because we have neglected our relationships with the earth mm. and, and we don't have a properly reciprocal relationship with it. Mm. We take a lot from I mean, the earth is very generous to us. <laughs> it provides us with the sources of life, what economists like to call ecosystem services. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is quite a, a sort of utilitarian way oh, of It's an incredibly dry and technical way of yeah. talking about it. It's very comically economist. But the earth provides us with all these things and we don't reciprocate that. Mm. We're not replenishing the mm. earth. I mean, obviously mm. we're depleting it at the moment. And similarly, what's at the heart of very large economic inequalities, Mm. I think, is a failure to see our connections with each other Mm. and a failure to see poor people as truly human and failure to understand that often what shapes our lives, yes, are are in individual choices, but also these big social forces. Mm. Mm. Um, And if we've done well in New Zealand, conversely, it's because we have used the infrastructure that everyone else in the country Mm. has paid for. What do you feel like we're up against in this country in terms of ideas that get in the way? 
Um, I think one of the consequences of inequality is that people lead increasingly separated lives. Mm. So rich people cluster in rich neighbourhoods, poor people cluster in poor neighbourhoods. Mm. And the worst consequence of that is rich people no longer have any idea of how bad life actually is and mm. what's causing mm. problems of poverty, and so they lose empathy, and so it becomes very easy just to blame beneficiaries for being mm. lazy. Mm. I think that's a big part of the problem. I also think, and the focus group work on inequality in New Zealand tells you this, that most New Zealanders are still egalitarians, but after 40 years of a sort of more market kind of approach and attacks on government, a lot of people just don't see how it can be different. Yeah, so it's a sort of compression of our imaginations or sense of possibility. Yeah, massively. Yeah, that the system works. Or, 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 or the government can work. Mm. Um, because what often happens in these focus groups is people will say lovely, really egalitarian things, mm. and then the one person in a 10-person focus group who's a bit of a market realist mm. says, oh, look, this is all very well, but you can't argue with the market. Okay. People are yeah. paid what they are because of the market. And basically everyone else in these focus groups crumbles. Oh, it's a really... Like, Sometimes in these debates people say, oh, we need greater visions and we need to be stronger on our values. And mm. I think, yes, up to a point, but actually where we're losing the argument often is on the what works stuff. Yeah. People just people think, oh, yeah, the market, yeah, you can't argue with supply and demand, it's really hard to mm-hmm. change that. Yeah, government's quite ineffective because we've been told that for 40 years. Even if you did spend a whole lot more money, you'd never solve poverty. Mm-hmm. And so they give up on that social mm-hmm change and mm. they just console themselves with saying, well, the system may be pretty broken, but I beat it. Yeah, so just go ahead as an individual unit. Or... Yeah, the guy who carried out these focus groups, I'm talking about Peter Skilling at mm. AUT, the article he wrote on it was called Neoliberal Subjectivities and Individual Consolations. Oh, interesting. Because yeah. he said people have this view of the world that's very, you know, they don't know how to argue against the sort of more market approach, but they have these individual consolations, these Mm. hero narratives like, well, I may have come from nothing and the system's unfair and it's a bit rigged, but I made it. Yeah, yeah. Someone I interviewed was Barry Coates who started Mindful Money and I remember him quoting someone saying the business of business is business, as in like this mindset that what happens in the market you don't question and it just... You just leave it alone. Mm. Yeah, that's a very Milton Friedman-style quote. And sometimes people have also said the business of government is business. Ah, right. You know, which is taking it another step further and saying everything should operate like a business as much as possible because that's the best and most efficient and most liberty-enhancing way of doing things. Mm. And that Mm. is what, I guess you could say, has colonised our imaginations for a long time in the Mm. 80s and 90s. Mm. I do think that way of thinking... Okay, like I said, it's still got its hold on in the New Zealand public, but not in any profoundly animating way, just mm. in a sense resigned hopelessness. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I think the field is definitely open for new ideas and changing people's minds in a new paradigm. Mm. It's just the old one is clinging on because people haven't seen a vision mm. of the future that they think works. works. Oh, I think that's crucial. Last week I went to your talk on the citizens' assemblies. And that was really inspiring, like getting many publics together so that different people are actually meeting and 
talking about things, especially if it then has some impact and some policy. Yeah, and that's just a little example of how you can bring ordinary people into decision-making, get together a group of 40 Wellingtonians who are exactly representative of of the city, so Mm. half male and half female and Māori and Pacifica in proportion to their makeup and the population. So you've actually got a representative group of people who are trying to make decisions or at least discuss the issues, which in this case was what should Wellington's vision be for the next 10 years. Yeah, and then get them talking to each other, get them listening, actually having to reflect and engage with views that they wouldn't normally Mm, confront mm. and come to some kind of consensus that is really an organic sort of wisdom of the crowd. Mm. I think things like that have got a lot of promise in terms of renovating sort of systems of democracy and government Mm. that we have that are looking pretty tired in the 21st century. Did you feel the sort of hope spark or was there any lift in that mood? Yes, I mean, I was so impressed by the way that these Wellingtonians Mm. went about this Mm. task. And these people, they were randomly selected Mm. by lottery, basically. They gave up four Saturdays in a row. Mm. They took their task really seriously. They really wanted to do a good job. They really wanted to produce some decisions or some recommendations that would meaningfully guide the City Council as Mm. it goes forward. It was the first time for Wellington City Council trialling this kind of process. There were definitely things about it that didn't work very well. Mm. But just seeing those sort of... And just seeing Wellington in a room, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that'd be great. Here's here's a group of people who are actually representative, not a room full of people who look like me, Mm. which is normally what you get in public consultations, (laughs) right? Yeah, yeah. I'd love to be in a room with people that I don't usually meet. Yeah, and that was one of the... I spoke a couple of the people in the assembly, a couple of the citizens said... Mm. This has really made me realise the extent to which I live in a bubble. Mm. But that's positive because what they're reflecting on was being exposed to differing viewpoints. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'd love more of that. So what about degrowth? Because some of the people I've talked to have felt that in order to survive climate change, we need to reduce the size of our economy. But I think in our previous conversations, you've said that you believe that we can keep growing the economy while reducing our impact on the environment. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm I'm sympathetic to the extent that the, the degrowth movement is obviously profoundly concerned about the state of the planet, and mm, I appreciate mm. that, and they're trying to, you know, generate a sense of urgency around that. But, yeah, I'm not on board with it. I mean, partly... One of the problems is the movement itself hasn't made up its mind, as far as I can tell, what it's actually calling for. Mm. And as I think I've said to you before, I think it tends to fall into the trap of what's true about it isn't new and what's new about it isn't true. Mm. So if the argument, which you hear from some degrowth people, is that what we need to reduce to degrow is our use of material resources and energies, of throughput, Mm. if you like, then I think that's broadly true. Certainly we're extracting resources from the earth at a totally unsustainable Mm. rate. Mm. But that's not new. Mm. That's fairly conventional ecology, ecological economics. That's been around for decades. And philosophically that's not a huge sort of world shift from where we are. If, on the other hand, they're making the argument that we what we need to reduce is the economy, is the size of the economy, we mm. need to degrow the economy, that would be very new. That would be a radical idea given that virtually everything is based on the presupposition that we need to grow the economy. 
That's new, but I don't think that's true. Ah, yeah. Why not? Well, the the conventional economy, which is what they're talking about, is is the the economy that's measured by gross domestic product, GDP, growth, right? And what is that? That is really just people exchanging goods and services for money. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's a really crude but sort of workable definition of the conventional Mm. economy. Obviously, you've got the other economies, like Mm. the unpaid labour, mostly done by women, raising children and looking after old people and things like that. But the conventional economy, so it's just goods and services being exchanged Mm. for money, right? Mm. Well, a lot of those exchanges are really good. Mm. They're really positive. Mm. You know, I mean, all every most of the time you and I go and buy stuff that we need from supermarkets yeah, and yeah. shops. That's adding to GDP growth and that's good. Also, and there's so many things that you can't get without economic exchanges, without exchanges where people are exchanging goods and services for money. So this building we're sitting in, you couldn't have created except through paying mm. people to mm. do stuff. Dialysis machines, really complicated mm. medical equipment. That's the result of this huge long chain of economic exchanges. Why would you seek well, to guess, degrow that? I guess it's what you were saying before that most of the resources and energy are being used by that top part. And, and so I guess cutting out the overconsumption, that, that the sort of overconsumption as opposed to meeting everyone's needs by these healthy exchanges, then. There must be some extra consumption going on that needs to be reduced. Sure, and, and I think that some of the things that the degrowth community talks about are useful and, mm. and would be productive. But it just to justify the things you don't need to say, and it doesn't make any sense to say, we should just reduce the size of the economy mm. in a really crude sense. What does make sense is to say, okay, there are absolutely things that count towards GDP growth mm. that are not yeah, productive. Yeah, yeah, to be more specific. Yeah, to, to put it really crudely, there's good GDP growth and there's bad GDP yeah, growth. Yeah, yeah. You want to encourage one and discourage the mm, other. Mm. You know, arms manufacturing counts towards <laughs> GDP. Right? Yeah, yeah. I'm absolutely not saying we should grow that. That's bad GDP. Yeah. Cleaning up after oil spills mm. is also there in GDP. Mm. Well, that's not something that we want more of. But maybe planting indigenous forest could add to GDP in some way. Could it? Well, if you paid people to do it, then mm. it would be there straight away. Yeah. It'd be and good it, to pay people because then they could eat. <laughs> yes, although you then you, you then also get into some quite naughty questions. So the government could pay people to plant more indigenous forest. Mm. I'd be supportive of that up to a point. But New Zealand has to be able to buy stuff from overseas, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah particularly stuff like really expensive and complicated medical equipment. Mm. So we have to be able to sell people Oh, stuff. yeah. And that's something I feel like is missed often in conversations, is that if we're going to buy stuff, what are we going to... What are we exporting? Because my mentor was Sir Paul Callaghan, who had this vision of focusing on niche technologies that was almost weightless or very light and could be made quite environmentally friendly, but then we could export our knowledge and sort of smart stuff overseas. Yeah, absolutely. And this just gets you back to this point that I think it's just very fundable economics and people forget it or they don't want to engage with it because they think that economics is bad. And like a lot of economics has been done very badly and I understand where people are coming Mm, from. mm. But yeah, I mean, it is just that 
exchanging goods and services for money is often really, really productive and enhances mm. well-being for both parties. Mm. And yeah, New Zealand does have to be able to sell stuff to the world quite apart from anything else. Look, I don't agree with degrowth, obviously, but even for argument's sake, you did. Mm. If New Zealand went to degrowth and no one else in the world did, mm. we'd just become incredibly poor <laughs> in GDP terms compared to the rest yeah, of, and we yeah. wouldn't be able to afford to buy anything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so... I mean, it's a bit like socialism. So, you can't do it in one country. <laughs> so is it that... Because that, I think there's this creativity and ingenuity needed to get people... I mean, I feel like we're motivated by creating things and you wouldn't want to demotivate that sort of bubbling energy of creation. Yeah, and you want that creativity in all sort of walks of life. Mm, I mean, I was mm. an English literature student originally. I mean, ironically, I have no... Uh, qualifications at all to talk about economics. <laughs> I just yeah. was a financial journalist for a long time and then mm. made a career writing about inequality. No, it's, I think it's hugely important. The other thing I should say is that just because I'm not in favour of reducing GDP growth doesn't mean that I'm at all sanguine about the state of the environment. Mm. Mm. My position is what might be called a growth or uh, yeah. agnostic about growth. Mm. Mm. In the same way that atonal music isn't concerned with conventional mm, tonality. Mm. The most important thing, obviously, is we set really tough bottom lines for mm, the planet. Mm. And those bottom lines are not about let's just protect what we've got now. Those bottom lines need to be regenerative. So mm. let's restore the environment, at least to the state it was, and say, I would say 1950, because that's the point where GDP growth really takes off and we also start really abusing the mm. earth, although you could wind back to 1780 and the Industrial Revolution. So we need to set those bottom lines really, really tough. If as a result of that and the demands of meeting climate change and keeping warming to no more than 1.5 degrees, ideally, we have to accept lower economic growth than we used to in the past. Mm. What I mean, that is just, that's how it has to be. That's inarguable. So I get the critiques of growth. I mean, growth is not a be-all and end-all. In fact, it's not an end at all. It's just mm. a means mm. to other things. So the planet has to come first, and obviously the economy has to serve people. And so mm. that's back to the distributional question. Mm. And so particularly if there's going to be less GDP growth, less sort of new wealth generated, then what there is has to go very profoundly to the poorest mm. people. Mm. And yeah, we do have to find ways of restraining certainly the overconsumption mm. at the upper end and redistributing income and wealth from people who, who don't need those extra increments of it and redistributing it to people who do. Mm. Absolutely. I still just don't think that any of that necessitates degrowth. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So um, do you have a a big vision or like if what would you love to see happen here in Aotearoa? Um, I don't have one fully worked out, but it does feel like now is a good time to be talking about these things mm. and I just mm. have the sense of these conversations bubbling away. Mm. I think particularly because, I mean, I'm not that politically engaged in a direct sense, but people who were campaigners and things, I think there was a real slackening of energy when Ardern got elected, because oh, people okay. people thought, all right, oh well, job done. Got <laughs> okay. a Labour government. Yeah. We must have won. And what they're discovering is that that didn't happen, of course. Mm, mm. And we face some pretty serious challenges as a country, mm. although I also think we're doing some things really well. So I think now's, now's the time when new ideas and new frameworks are going to start bubbling up. Mm. I often think about things through the, through the rubric of what would it take 
to make New Zealand genuinely the best place in the world to raise a child. Yeah, that's cool. Which is what we often say it is, and which is kind of what it is for middle class and upper middle class mm, people, mm. but it's 100% not the mm, case. If you're mm. poor, in fact, New Zealanders, overall, New Zealand children, has mm. some of the worst outcomes mm. in the developed world. Mm. It's terrible. It's terrible, and also... And I think that, you know, look, it's a cliche, but it takes a village to raise a child. Mm. I think thinking about children is really profound because it actually brings in the whole of society and thinks, Mm. well, actually, are we building a nurturing society, Mm. including a good, healthy environment for those children to grow up Mm. in? I like that question, are we building a nurturing society? Yeah, yeah, and so I think it's about, yeah, I mean... for me, it's about facing the century with optimism, which mm. I don't think necessarily everyone is, mm. and saying we need to match the ingenuity and drive and entrepreneurialism that humanity has shown since 1950, for mm. argument's sake, and massively increased living standards as a result, with a commitment to absolutely respecting the planet's. Mm. boundaries Mm. and seeing ourselves as embedded to some extent Mm. in the planet and I think when we need to also have a commitment to match the incredible opportunities that the century will open up with technology and learning and global connection with an ironclad intent to ensure that those opportunities are available to everyone Mm. I mean I think we should be aiming to eliminate certainly the long-term forms of poverty We tend to talk about reducing poverty in New Zealand. Well, I mean, okay, there would always be short-term poverty. But what about eliminating it? Yeah, people will always fall into poverty like mm. from time to time. You mm. can't design a system that's got enough to stop that. But I don't think it's unrealistic to say there should be no long-term poverty in New Zealand and certainly no homelessness. Yeah, because Hemi was telling me that in pre-colonial Māori society, like there wasn't poverty or homelessness. Yeah, I couldn't speak to that, not being an expert in pre-colonial Māori society. Mm. Um, but, yeah. I mean, the, 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 the challenge currently is, of course, is you're not trying to, say, run an iwi that had a few hundred or thousand people, all of whom yeah. were probably connected by yeah. whakapapa. Mm. And social solidarity is a lot easier to engender when people are very close to each mm. other mm. or are indeed related to each other. We're trying to govern a country of five million people. Yeah, many of whom have yeah. very little to do with each other, mm. with very complex infrastructure and things like that. Mm. But yeah, absolutely, there's a lot of indigenous traditions we can draw on, also a lot of Western humanist traditions. And I mean, in countries like the Czech Republic, the Netherlands, Scandinavians, their child poverty rates are down around 3 to 4%. Mm. And what know, are ours? 10 to 12% on the same measures. Mm. But ours were 20% not that long ago. Oh, okay. So we've actually made some really good progress in the ah, last couple of governments, yeah. which I call the big unacknowledged success mm, story of New Zealand mm, life, mm. Uh, because I think we've gone to a very negative mindset as a country mm. and people just looking at the bad things. Mm. But yeah, we could achieve so much if we had an ethos of respecting our, well, seeing our reciprocity with the environment, seeing our reciprocity with other people. Mm. So that would mean wealthier people paying a lot more in tax. Mm acknowledging that they've benefited from the infrastructure that other people, that past generations have built. Mm. Seeing tax as a right relationship, as a reciprocity thing, I've benefited from this. So if I'm going to pay it forward, if I'm going to be seen as a good ancestor yeah, by future yeah. generations, yeah. I need to contribute to building that infrastructure in future. Mm. That means building really strong, renewing the social safety net, really investing in children, in children's early years, ensuring that every child gets that fantastic start in life 
that I had and also in changing the way our democratic systems work because Uh, they're very 20th century, right? Yeah. They're all operating more or less the same way. It is hard to feel like you actually have any impact or influence. Yeah, as an ordinary person, right? Yeah, yeah. And especially when you get to vote every three years and in between times government asks you to take part in a probably meaningless consultation. Yeah, yeah. And the Citizens' Assembly was an innovation that aimed at the heart of that and is really trying to change those things because it's saying let's get people together and discussing things and engage Mm. in a way that's really meaningful but also let's give them a forum where they at the very least make recommendations Mm. that the local council has to listen to and respond to Mm. and at the very least explain why they didn't follow. Mm. But ideally you get to a point where citizens' assemblies have actually got devolved decision-making power. Yeah, that'd be cool. And and you also have participatory budgeting where councils are putting up a little bit of their new spending budget for the Mm -hmm. community to allocate directly and crowdsource legislation. Yeah, I mean, 21st century democracy for me is what I call everyday democracy, Mm -hmm. where you actually feel like you're part of government every day of the year, Mm -hmm. if you want to, Mm -hmm. not just one day every three years when Mm -hmm. you vote. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have, like, if if you kind of zoom ahead sort of 20 years, putting on your sci-fi imagination, do you have any visions or imaginations of what it could feel like or what it could look like to be in that future? Well, I I think it could be really, really exciting with the big caveat about does the world tackle climate change properly or not and do we pass a reversible tipping points and things like that. And so bear in mind I have no insight into or influence over any of that. I mean, I think it, I think it could be really exciting. In 20 years' time, we'll be at about the 200th anniversary of the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi, mm. right? And it's something we haven't really talked about yet, but, you know, I'm fully on board with sort of the Matike Mai model oh, yeah. of different spheres of decision-making. Mm-hmm. We could by then, I mean, you know, some brains of some Pākehā people would melt at the thought of this, but <laughs> we could end up at a point with sort of what Te Pāti Māori is starting to demand, mm. which is, you know, for Māori to be able to live well and authentically, they effectively have a whole set of institutions, starting with a Māori parliament mm-hmm. and heading on down, and mm. whatever that looks like is whatever Māori design. Mm. So, you know, like we could have this fabulously bicultural, power-sharing mm. society where Māori and Pākehā are still living really rich, intertwined lives, mm. but each has got the institutions that they need to live authentically mm. and well. Mm. I mean, that would be incredibly exciting. That would do a huge amount to tackle poverty and stuff as mm. well, I mean, to allow Māori to address the issues that they have in their communities. So you could have that as your kind of bedrock and the sort of the crown sphere of decision-making could mm. be greater with citizens' assemblies and participatory mm. budgeting mm. and crowdsourced legislation. And I think we could be at a point where we've restored, and it's starting to happen already, we've restored wetlands, mm. we've restored some of the rivers mm. and lakes, we've moved to a model where, yes, we still have an agricultural sector, but it's going with sort of value, not volume. Mm. You reduce herd sizes, you're polluting the environment less, but still productive. Mm-hmm. One of the big things we need to do is, this is talking about the long term, but we also need to get better at thinking about the long term. Yeah, You know, yeah, we don't yeah. plan well yeah. ahead as a country. And again, Indigenous societies and some Western societies think about what does it mean to be a good ancestor? Mm. How do you plan multiple generations mm. ahead? So by 2040, we could be 
We could have a sovereign wealth fund. We could be building long-term savings. We could have mm. kids KiwiSaver, long-term savings for every mm. New Zealand child, mm. for instance. It's building wealth for everyone. We could have fabulous social housing developments at mass mm. scale. Mm. Like City of Vienna, 60% of the housing there is municipal, is owned oh, by the state, right. yeah. basically. Respecting the planet's boundaries, absolutely. Looking after New Zealand nature. I mean, we could, you know, on the way to being predator-free and looking after each other, investing in housing, and actually genuinely a country that is the best place in the world to bring up children, mm, in mm. reality, not just in theory as mm, it is now. Mm, mm. That sounds very cool. Yeah, I think maybe we'd have to get over that sort of tall poppy syndrome. You talked about how we're tending to be a bit negative at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think it's about celebrating everyone's mm. success. Mm. My attitude towards wealth, for instance, and I talk a lot about wealth inequality, is not that wealth creation is bad mm. or that entrepreneurs are bad or anything like that, far from it, but it's just my view is that that wealth was created in partnership with everyone else in New Zealand, and so mm. people in a reciprocal way need to be putting back into that yeah. system through actually paying a decent amount of tax. Mm-hmm. Whereas at the moment, the wealthiest New Zealand families, we found out through research in April, pay a tax rate of about 9%, whereas you and I will be paying 20% on mm. average. Mm. My mum is in a um, rest home and the, the carers there are just so lovely and I'm so grateful for them. Yeah, and that is, uh, for all that I defend conventional economics a bit, that is an absolute test mm. case of mm. an economy that just fails to value what is really valuable yeah, because yeah. aged care workers... Emotionally demanding, mm. intellectually demanding, because there's a lot of healthcare in it, and it's physically demanding because mm. you're lifting mm. people in and out of bed often. It is some of the most important and the most demanding mm. and most valuable work in New Zealand, and it's paid $26.70 mm. an hour. It's terrible. Whereas you can make a lot of money in New Zealand land banking, mm. even though that's probably a net negative. You're not adding anything mm. at that point. Mm. The value of stuff and the price we attach to it is very wildly out of whack. Do you think there's a way to fix that? Um, there's probably no one magic way, but there's lots of things we could do. I mean, for instance, we could have uh, a tax on land banking or a tax on underdeveloped uh, land. Yeah. yeah. When city council's looking at that, that could generate quite a decent amount of cash, which we could then use to pay aged care workers yeah, better because yeah. a lot of them are essentially employed by the state yeah, in okay. an indirect yeah. sense. They're, or their pay rates are determined by the yeah, state, okay. basically. Yeah. So that would be a rebalancing. Mm. And there's lots of different ways you can do that rebalancing. Uh, yeah. 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 A lot of it's about power. You need stronger trade unions as well because mm-hmm. that's often how you've rebalanced company revenue towards workers as opposed to owners. Mm. Mm. So there's all those sorts of things. And similarly also, just coming back to my two things, people and planet, our pricing of the damage that people do to the planet mm. and the costs that's attached that are also miles out of whack. Uh, yeah, because yeah. you can do enormous damage to the environment in New Zealand and you don't really pay mm. an economic cost. Mm. I mean, I, I don't think carbon pricing is a solution to all our problems, but by 2040, we'll have to be in a world where you are probably paying something more like $200 per tonne of carbon emissions as yeah, opposed right. to sort of 60 or 70 right, as yeah. it is at the moment. And so that massively rebalances things and then actually, well, it's obviously just massively dissuades pollution. It's sort of like getting the rules of the game right so that it's actually protecting the environment as well as 
enabling yeah. people to do stuff. Yeah, I mean, economics is in one way is a system for determining what you value. Mm, mm. That's only one sort of partial definition of it. And the economist Mariana Mazzucato has written a lot about this. And I guess that's what I'm trying to say is that what we pay people doesn't match up to their value mm. and what we fine people doesn't match up to the damage that they do. Right, yeah. No, I mean, it's not the case that you'll achieve the good society just by aligning prices. Mm. It's actually a very sort of neoliberal Milton Friedman mm. type argument, but it is part of the solution. Mm. And so getting those things into alignment is absolutely crucial. Mm. Mm. What do you think we're up against or what, what are you up against? Oh, I think it's partly what I talked about earlier, people having ignorant, negative views about people who are different to them. Mm particularly the poor, I think it's about people's lack of belief that there's an alternative system that works. Mm. And I guess the other thing I would say is that while one doesn't want to get conspiratorial, there are some very powerful vested interests Mm. out there, and we saw that in the debate about the capital gains tax, right, right. which is just a tax that nearly every developed country has. Mm. It's just sort of part of the furniture in most Mm. civilised societies, but... Every time you try to get one across the line in New Zealand, there's this avalanche of attacks mm. from property investors, mm. wealthy people. Because it's the basis business. of the economy here, I guess. Oh, because they, because they like making huge gains that aren't taxed. Mm. They have this ideological aversion to tax. Mm. You have to be real, realistic about the fact that those vested interests are very powerful. Farming mm. is, a, is another great one. I don't have a problem with farming per se, but the fact they seem determined never to pay the price of the environmental damage mm. that they do is incredibly concerning. Mm. And that's because they're an extraordinarily powerful lobby mm. or vested mm. interest. Mm. And you have to be realistic about the fact that those things are an obstacle to progress. Yeah. What do you think would help? Oh, all sorts of things, I think. Primarily, people just have to keep thinking, right? And imagining, you talked to you, yeah, yeah. you talked earlier about our imaginations being yeah. constrained. You have to widen the bounds of those, but also be attentive to what works. Yeah, to having visions of the future that are grounded. So maybe practical. we need examples of things that actually work. Yeah, I think we need example. We need to bring forward more examples of positive change mm, that's already mm, happening. Mm. I was talking to someone very senior in the climate field once, mm. and I said. What, what do you think works mm. for climate change communication? Because I don't feel like it's landing as yeah. it needs to at the moment. Yeah. And they said, well, it feels like the doom and gloom stuff doesn't really work, mm. but it also, you can't just paint this vision of the sunny uplands. Mm. It seems too perfect, too mm. unbelievable. You can't just say, oh, well, we'll just live in this mm. wonderful world where there's endless renewable energy mm. and mm. everyone, you know. Uh, people just don't believe it. What does work is tangible examples. Mm. It says, well, in this community, they massively improved their public transport and so their car-based emissions have fallen dramatically yeah, or yeah. they've built renewable energy generation mm. or they have done X and Y. Yeah, because it's quite annoying when people talk about things you can do individually when it just feels like there needs to be more systematic or more collaborative changes. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I think we need to point to the successes that are already there. We have reduced child poverty, like I said. Mm. New Zealand's carbon emissions are now falling. Oh, that's good. But no one knows about it. Since oh. 2019, they've been on a downward track, oh. and it's not COVID. Yeah. It's sustained. Mm. We've finally How started to bend the curve. Sorry? What, what did we do? Oh, well, it's a bunch of things. A small amount of it probably is EVs. Uh, a lot is renewable energy. Mm. Generation is a big part of it. Coal... Use in New Zealand now is at the lowest it's been in a very, mm. very long mm. time. Probably some sustainable building stuff. Just a whole bunch of different bits and pieces mm. and reducing the energy intensity of some things, starting to get rid of coal-fired boilers, uh, yeah, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Look, the reductions are nowhere near what they need to be. Like We're, yeah. we're still miles off our 2030 targets. But there are examples of positive things mm. that are mm. happening there are some really great government programs in the social space, like Housing First, which gets people housed so then they can deal with their addictions and yeah, okay. mental yeah. health problems, or the Healthy Homes Initiative, which works with poorer families to heat their homes, insulation, mm, mm. curtains, carpets, heat pumps, all that stuff, massive reduction mm, in hospitalizations mm. from kids not getting sick in their cold, damp, mouldy houses anymore. That returns 4 or $5 in social benefits for every dollar we spend mm, on it. Mm. There, there are things we're doing in this country that are actually working really well. Oh, that's really good. And you're know. right, and we, yeah. need, we need to talk more we about them. We need to know about them. Yeah. 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 Cool. Well, do you have any last things to say? We've just got... Actually, we don't have much time left. <laughs> oh, there we go. Stop that. Yeah, is there any final... Comments? Um, look, I think the basis of life, it does vary a bit over different cultures and different communities, but there's some pretty fundamental things that we all need. And I know it's a bit of a cliche, but it's sort of hard to beat the old Norman Kirk summation of things where he said what people need is somewhere to live, someone to love, somewhere to work and something to hope for. Mm, mm. And I think we've got incredible potential in this country mm. and I don't think that vision is totally out of reach. Mm. I, th I think, ooh, yeah, we've lost our way a little bit as a country, maybe, but it's absolutely within our capabilities to get it back on track. And we've done incredible things as a country. You know, the first country in the world where women won the right to vote, mm. for instance. We had one of the highest living standards in the world per capita at one point. You think about the treaty settlements mm. process, which in the 80s would have seemed inconceivable. Mm. Yes, it's vastly incommensurate to Māori ambitions for Te Naranga Te Ratanga and things, but actually that was sort of an incredible example, I think, of New Zealanders at least responding in part to mm. an urgent challenge and responding to it with ingenuity and creativity and grace and compassion. Mm. And I think that's what New Zealand can do, spirit. Mm. If we build on that, there's no reason New Zealand, Aotearoa New Zealand in 2040 can't be an amazing place. Uh, yeah, that was great. Thank you. Ah, yeah, lovely to chat about those big picture issues. Yeah, yeah, done. yeah. Yeah, especially after the election. Which, oh, um, yeah, it's like the, the least inspiring election possibly in history. Yeah, yeah. And maybe it's, I think it maybe is uninspiring as a counterpoint for what's happening next. Hopefully, it's a sort of bland launch pad for something inspiring.
show is also available as a podcast at thegoodenergyproject.substack.com.